Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is a continuation from last week as we studied Paul's explanation of the gospel. We will see that there is an anticipation of unity that for Paul is a directed expectation of the working out of that gospel. Jesus' work and God's design for the church is to become a new humanity where God dwells through his spirit. Thanks for joining us today as we see how the atoning work of Jesus has crossed all cultural and racial boundaries to create one new man. While I served at the Christian school overseas, one of the things that we had um, abundance of was garbage. Uh, You can imagine any school is going to produce a lot of waste. Uh, And one of the things that I soon discovered we needed was a way of getting rid of the trash. And so me and one other missionary, uh, we set to task to building an incinerator. And here I got a picture of it for you there. It was it was a masterpiece of craftsmanship. Let me just tell you, it was beautiful. Um, we, we got it so that there would be block upon block that would contain all the rubbish and burn it up. And then we have to dig it out and do it again and over and over. One of the things that these amateur masons didn't realize, though, is that what happens to block when it gets hot? It does not keep its integrity. <laughs> it, it begins to crumble and it did not take long for our masterpiece to uh, look awful, and we had to ask for help. So fortunately, uh, there were some um, much more skilled craftsmen on the island that we hired, and uh, when we asked them, you know, what did we do wrong? We didn't realize that it was the block that was the problem, and they said, you need to build it with stone. And so I thought, well, maybe they'll replace some of the crumbled blocks here and put a stone in there, right? Knock this one up there, put a stone in there, but that's not what they did. Do you know what they did? They knocked the whole thing down. That's what they did. All of our hard work took a whole Saturday and they knocked it all down. And they started from the bottom and they built it up brand new. There's a metaphor in here. Within our lives, there is no lasting repair to your nature and mine without a complete overhaul. A tearing down to the very foundation that we would build anew on a proper foundation on Jesus Christ alone. And when you look through the work of the apostles, you find that there is a particular issue that becomes manifest in the church. An issue of division. And we know that this is the strategy of the evil one to continually seek to divide God's people And the issue at hand in the the Apostles' day, especially within writings of the Apostle Paul, is the divide that is existing in the church between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, We have been in for a few weeks now what I'm calling a master class on Christianity. The Apostle Paul writes from prison a circular letter to go to all of the churches of which we have today the copy to the city of Ephesus. And as the church was gathering, they were working through trying to understand their own establishment by God's strategy for their purpose. Why make a church? Why have this whole hubbaloo about trying to gather a people together, a redeemed people? Why not just carry on the practices of the Jews? Why not just develop um, kind of a, a wider gaze to let some of the other nations in whilst still maintaining the distinctives of Judaism? Or why should we even let 
the nations in at all. And the church in the first century needed a class. And so I hope you come today to learn. I hope you come with your pens and papers ready because I want to remind you this is, in essence, a foundational understanding of what the purpose of the church is. And you'll recall from a few weeks ago we learned that tantamount to our new creation is having a new head to follow. And that new head offers us a new hope and resurrection by which the church is now a brand new creation. And for today we will see that God's design is to create a new humanity, a new man, if you will, on the earth through the work of Jesus. Last week, as we were in Ephesians chapter 2, we uh, spent our time understanding Paul's argument for the vertical relationship of reconciliation, that we are made now right with God and are new creatures. This comes from Ephesians 2 verse 10. He says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do or to walk in. So you are, by the blood of Jesus, a new creation. That has been a reconciling work on the vertical, that God on high has now made reconciliation with sinners like you and like me. And just as a recall for a reminder, how are we saved? By works or by grace? We are saved by grace. Amen. Repeatedly, the, the apostle helps the church know that it is not a boastful effort of merit that you can achieve that will earn you salvation. No, instead, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and therefore, it is God's mercy. It is, it is an act of God alone to reconcile you on the vertical. You with me? Say amen if you're with me. Amen. Okay. Today, we get the implication of that vertical reconciliation. By virtue of being new creatures, now there is a new expectation for how we relate to one another, not on the vertical, but on the horizontal. How are we, in this new design of new creatureship, of this new people of God, how are we to relate to one another? And that's what we're going to seek to understand for this morning. There is a, there's a really, this gets a little Bible nerdy on my part, but I'm going to share it with you guys. There's something super cool that's going on in our passage today. It's a thematic chiastic structure. That sounds like a mouthful, um, but a, a chiasm is a particular rhyming scheme in uh, Jewish poetry. Um, it, it comes from the Greek letter chi, which is an X. And the design here is so that as you were to um, write the poetry, it shows up in the Psalms quite often, you start on a subject here, and then you step closer to your purpose, and then you step closer again until you reach the very center of the, the gumdrop, whatever it is. Like, whatever it is you're trying to understand, you reach the very center, but you don't end here at the center. Instead, you repeat the step below that, and then the step out and the step from there. So the argument flows to a middle, and then it flows back to its start. That's what we have here in this passage. So in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to invite you to turn there. I'd like to just show you up here on the screen what I mean by that. I have, I have all of the text that, well, the first half of the text that we'll be looking at for today. Um, and the argument is going to match on these beginning and the end. These two are going to match with one another. And then from there, it's going to flow uh, the second step that's going to match with the end. And from there, even closer, a thematic chiasm that eventually gets us 
right to the very center of what Paul wants us to know. And this is what I want to begin for you in understanding of our text to recognize God's purpose. The, the two halves of where we're going to tra- trace this morning is going to be an uncovering of God's, hear me now, God's purpose in what Jesus did. And then secondly, the result of what Jesus has done. You guys track with me on that? Those are are the two aspects we're going to study this morning. The purpose is going to flow through this chiastic structure as Paul builds his argument in and then builds his argument out. And then from that purpose, we're going to have a conclusion. We're going to have a result of what Jesus has accomplished to which I believe you and I will have some application to put into practice God's word today. You guys with me? Okay. Um, I'm just going to... I'll show you one more time because I thought it was so cool. Look at that. Right? See how that works? That, that's what I want you to watch for as we work through this this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2, let's start in verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ, or I'm sorry, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. It rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. All right. Wow, we got a lot to get through this morning. We're going to see how quickly we can move through it. Um, You might see, again, something that the Apostle Paul is doing is he's going to be contrasting two realities, living without Jesus and living with Jesus. So this is really going to be highlighting the work that Jesus has accomplished and how either being with him or without him will have ramifications for how we understand both our own identity and rights 
and that which God has done. So as we work through those chiasms, there's five ways that those, that those particular areas can be classified. The first speaks to identity. Um, you, you're Gentiles. You're called the uncircumcised. In fact, you're excluded from the promises of God. The second has to do with what rights you are able to enjoy, what blessings you are able to have access to. And this comes by virtue of, if you're in Israel, you have the covenants of promise. You have God. You have hope. But if you're a Gentile, you're outside of that. Some of you might not quite know these terms. I wonder if I might just get some base definitions for us. If you were part of God's people from the lineage of Abraham, you were called a what? A Jew. If you were not a Jew, you were called a what? That's it. Those are the options. You are either within God's paradigm of his covenant blessing as a Jewish person, or you belong to the rest of the world as a Gentile. Those those are the only two categories that exist when Paul is writing this at this time. Now, there's a little bit more background that we'll get into that has to do with what it means to be God's people and how that truth actually predates Abraham. We're going to talk about that just briefly. If we don't get to quite, quite as much of it today, this is a great issue for us to look at in Bible study. But what I want you to see here is that of the chiastic structure, we're first talking about identity and then rights. And then we're going to ask the question, so what did God do? What is it through Jesus that actually happened? And then the fourth issue is going to be, how did he do it? Not what did he do, but how did he go about doing this work? And then the very center, remember that gooey little gumdrop we're trying to get to, the center of the X? That's going to be answering the question, why did God do this? And that's where I want us to really make sure we catch the reason for today, because this will be the defining feature that helps us move to the conclusion for the purpose of the church. Why did Jesus do what he did? And what do those implications mean for us today? So the very first question we have here is, what is my identity? And without Jesus, we are estranged. With Jesus, we are adopted. Look with me back into the text here in verse 11. He says, formerly you, gen- you were uh, Gentiles called uncircumcised. Now there's a little bit, of a little bit of a dig Paul does here because he says it's only by those who call themselves the circumcision. And that is not the circumcision by which the Old Testament was referring to. Now, you might think, well, wasn't it in symbol? Well, of course it was. Circumcision was a practice that was done physically, but that wasn't the one that God was concerned about. Even the book of Deuteronomy helps us to understand this. What did God have in mind? That our hearts would be circumcised. That's the key issue. So you can call yourself, like the Jews did at this time, the circumcision all day long, but what does God care about? The outside or the inside? He judges the heart. That's right. And so here, if you're a Gentile... You're kind of out of luck with that. You're estranged from God, accused by those who think that they are in. But that changes on the other end. So the other end of this chiasm comes all the way back down in verse 19. He says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. This is the verse right here, right before verse 20. Members of God's household. How awesome is that? This is the consequence of it. You are a member of God's household. If you were to come down to my office, you'll see right behind my desk, I have a fish tank. Now, fish are fine. They're pretty easy pets to take care of, right? But do you know where every one of these fish lived before they lived in my house? They lived in the lake where they could get eaten by any other bigger fish. 
But now that they live in my house, what's their life like? Feed me, feed me. That's all they are now. Right now, they're just these little pets that are completely taken care of. The water temperature, the environment, the food, everything is taking care of them. Why do they have this privilege? Because they are now what? I didn't really adopt them. I don't want you guys thinking that. Like they're in my... But they're in my house now. I, I want to make sure that we understand this is a great treasure of consequence for what it means to be with Jesus. Look at this verse from uh, Galatians as Paul writes to the churches in Galatia. He says, So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law, that we might receive adoption as sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. This word Abba is an Aramaic uh, alliteration of the consonantal sound ah, just like we do with da. What what, what do babies say to their dad, right? Da, da. Right, that's this this word of intimacy, of, of union, of familial connection to say Abba. You're crying out, Daddy is what you're crying out. And so you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Now we're going to come back to some implications and conclusions of what this means as after we work through all the observations. Second question is this. So what are my rights? Well, on the front of, end of the chiasm, you would be foreigners. Um, I don't know how many of you are Jewish here, uh, but if you are not, you are a foreigner. You are outside citizenship with Israel. In fact, look with me back into the text. You're separate from Christ. This is in verse 12. Five things mentioned. Number one, separate from Christ. Number two, excluded from citizenship. Number three, foreigner to the covenants and promise. Number four, without hope. That's a sad one. And fifthly and lastly, you're without God in the world. You have no rights. But because of Jesus, that's verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, the flip side of the chiasm shows up in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but watch this, fellow citizens with God's people. And as we already saw, members of his household. So you're no longer estranged, you're adopted. Additionally, you're no longer foreigners, but you're now citizens. Now, you might first hear that word and be reminded of what Paul says in the book of Philippians, right? Our citizenship is in what? Is in heaven. We're familiar with that verse. However, that's not what he means here. When the Apostle Paul here is talking about citizenship, he's referring to a kind of nationalism citizenship with Israel. Not citizenship in heaven. He'll use that in a different context. But here, the citizenship, and it really isn't citizenship. Really what it is, is it's a connection with the covenantal promises of God. It doesn't make you Jewish. It doesn't make you part of Israel. It makes you Christian. But in so being a Christian, it means that the promise that was given to Abraham is now extended to a crummy Gentile like you. It's amazing. Amen it is. That's right. In fact, look at this verse from Galatians 3. Paul says, if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and an heir according to the promise. 
So, yes, in a different context, especially if we were speaking in Philippians, or as the writer of Hebrews says, that they're looking for a country that isn't their own, and God has prepared a city for them. All those are speaking of a citizenship in heaven. That's not what this one means. This one is talking about a connection, a union with the covenantal promises that only flow through those who are citizens of Israel. That now is extended to you if you are in Christ. So these are our first two questions that have to do with us. What's my identity? I'm I'm a child of God. I'm I'm adopted into a new family. What are my rights? I have access to the covenantal promises of God because I am now knit in, or as Paul makes the argument in Romans, grafted into the tree of God's people. Now, the last three subjects of the chiasm are going to deal with the work that Jesus did. The first is the question here, so what did God do? What did he really do? And if you look into our text, you can see it. If you look with me in verse 13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You'll see the, um, the chiasm on this in verse 17. See if you can, connect, can see the connection here. He came and preached peace to you who were Far away and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father through one Spirit. So what did God do? Well, without Jesus, you have hostility. You have this anger that exists between you. But in Christ, you and I have now peace. He came and preached peace. Now think with me in your own home. If your kids are fighting, what do you do? You, you, you say, you go to your room and you go to... Why? Why do we instinctively know to do that, right? Because when they don't get along, they're just fighting all the time, they need to be separated. Well, this is, in essence, apart from God's will, what had happened in history. That the Jews, being near and having access to God, had cast the Gentiles away. Now, I don't have time this morning to recount for you the story uh, of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. He he was a Greek ruler who came and besieged Jerusalem before the time of Christ. He was a Gentile. And he murdered the priests. And any child that was circumcised, he had killed and hung around its mother's neck. He took everything that was in the temple and removed it away and sacrificed a pig, a pig, an unclean animal on the altar of God. And the Jews saw this happen. And this is, this is a terrible event in the history of the Jewish people. But what it did was cement into their hearts a separation from those Gentiles. And we've heard the cry that comes from World War II, right? From the Holocaust, right? Never again, right? That's not the first time that that was said. The Jews have been persecuted. The Jews have received a unique punishment long before World War II. And so this is another reason why They had separated themselves and there was a hostility between the two so that you stay far away while we stay near. And yet in Christ, what has he done? He has made reconciliation between these. He has made peace. Hear me now. That is what God has done. Now, Paul doesn't just tell us that's what he did. He actually tells us how he did it. This is, by the way, I hope you see we're getting closer to the middle. We're working our way right to the center. 
What is it that God actually did? Look with me in verse 14. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and here it is, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. You see, without Jesus, the people who would want to worship God would always be divided from one another. In fact, there was in this time an actual physical divider. If you were to go to Jerusalem and want to worship God as a Gentile, you had to remain outside of the near courts within the temple. I wrote this down. The Jews, I recorded this actually from Honer's commentary. The Jews had a one and a half meter wall in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple precincts that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews with an inscription in Greek and Latin that prohibited the entrance of any foreigner under the threat of death. So you can see there was a very literal wall. Paul's going to say there was, there was a dividing wall between these two. However, that probably isn't what he meant. He probably didn't mean the actual literal wall because in this context, there's no mention of Jerusalem, right? That didn't show up. In fact, during Paul's time, he says that the wall is torn down, but in reality, the wall was still there. So he's probably not talking about the literal wall, even though you could see that as a Gentile. It would be like this. If you didn't have the right pedigree, if you didn't belong to the right people, and you wanted to come to worship this morning, we might tell you, that's nice that you came, but you need to stay in the parking lot. And there would be what in God's church? A favoritism shown only to those who met the certain requirements and a separation that then divides God's people. So as much as there was a literal wall, what does Paul mean here in this text? What's he trying to say by recording for us in 14 and 15 that he has abolished it in his flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations? I'd like to read for you out of Honer's commentary how this is not a literal wall, but a metaphorical wall of the law. Honer says, the law required the Jews to be holy and separate. There was rabbinical teachings that referred to the law. This comes out of a Mishnah from Leviticus that it was like a fence. That's how they saw the law. The law segmented off God's people so we didn't get any of that pollution from them Gentiles. That's how they understood the law. Thus, they could not eat with Gentiles. They could not intermarry with them. Right within the present context, the law of circumcision marked a real separation between Jews and Gentiles. This often led to a hostility between Jews towards Gentiles and was a cause of Gentile hatred of the Jews. Therefore, the law, which may have included many minute scribal additions, was to be strictly observed by the Jews and was yet at the same time offensive to the Gentiles, thus causing hostility between Jews and Gentiles. I direct your attention once more to our text in Ephesians 2. He says he's made the two one by destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. This would be another really good question for us to study at on a Wednesday morning, um, some of our English nuance here doesn't carry exactly what Paul intended. Your Bible might use the word abolish. I want to make sure that we understand that Jesus in no way comes to abolish the law. And basically because it can't be done. 
Do you know why? Because God said it. And anything that God said is going to stand. There's no way to change what God has said. And so Jesus helps him to say, I'm not come to abolish what God has said. Instead, what did Jesus come to do? I heard it. He, he came to fulfill the law. And so what Paul means here by the word abolish, it means to render its arresting authority no longer operative. That's what abolish means. It doesn't mean that the law is gone. It means that the power that the law had over you as sinners, it's arresting work for those who are in Christ has no authority because it's been fulfilled by who? I think you get this. All right. Hopefully you guys are tracking with that. It's, it's a concept that takes a little bit more understanding because of the way in which our English words convey a little bit of extra nuance here. That's not there, but here's what I want you to know. It's a beautiful word. What are we now in Christ? We are reconciled to God. We're not divided. Remember, we're not talking here about the vertical reconciliation. That was last week. Last week was a vertical reconciliation between God and between man. But now because of that, Paul says, you can have a reconciliation with one another on the horizontal, thus finding peace. And this brings us to the very center of the Tootsie Pop. I know you were hoping to get there. How many licks does it take for a pastor to get there? Well, about 30 minutes. All right. Why did God do this? Why did God do it? And it's because he's taking the old and he's making it new. Look with me in verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. This is in the middle of 15. He says, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. This is what God has done for us. Wherever you come from, whatever your nationality was, Jew or Gentile, do you know what the work of Jesus can do? It can move you back before a time of Abraham. A time when people come from Adam. But how did we come from Adam? Do you remember? How, how did Adam do, folks? Not good. Not good. And so all of us coming from Adam carry with us this stain of sin and the promise of death. But now through Jesus... There's something new that can come, a recreation, a new man, not of two peoples, not of multiple nationalities, but one new people. And that's the hope that we have here. He also says this similar, similarly in his letter to the Galatians. I'm just going to highlight a few passages because uh, we just don't have time to work through all of chapter three. But here's what Paul says. He says, scripture foresaw that God would justify, it's a really beautiful word, justify the Gentiles by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Here it is. The gospel in advance. Didn't know you know it was in Genesis. Here it is. All nations will be blessed through you. There it is. The gospel. All the way back in Genesis. So that those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. So he concludes in verse 28. There is therefore neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all now one in Christ Jesus. This is why God sent Jesus. Yes, obviously, last week to reconcile sinners to God. We got that. But to do more than that, to create a new kind of community, a new kind of humanity, and so as we go back to our observations here, I want to give us the conclusion of it. What is so new? Well, there's a new Adam. That's the part that's new. 
Uh, this beautiful verse that comes from 1 Corinthians 15, says, Paul says, For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now Paul is using in that context to speak of the resurrection, but the truth applies to this, that in Christ there is a new humanity, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, and for all those who are in him are also no longer separate from one another nationality. You're now connected together as a one new man. The next uh, conclusion, and by the way, here's why we're starting on number five at the bottom. Because remember the chiastic structure? So we we have to work our way out of the middle now. This is the middle. We're going to work our way back out. So the next next conclusion is, why did God do it? Well, to give us a new allegiance to Christ now. Not an allegiance to the law. He, He has abolished it. He's rendered it without authority for those who are in Christ. And so if you're, like many Judaizers were, if you're on the side of works and the law, you're going to find you have the wrong allegiance. He gives you a new allegiance, an allegiance to Christ. There was a couple, it was a couple years ago now, I took my son to a um, a concert. It wasn't really a concert. It was like a, I don't even know what to call it. It was at Dude Perfect. Do you guys know what Dude Perfect is? Are you young enough to know what Dude Perfect is? Okay, if you don't know, they're a YouTube channel that does trick shots. And for middle schoolers, it's the coolest thing there is, right, pal? Yeah. So we went to go see them. Well, um, the tickets that I got, I thought were going to get us in the door. You might see where this is going. Something similar happened uh, at a concert that I went to in Green Bay with Emily. We were in one line thinking that we were in the right line, but our tickets were not right. Now, here's the deal. When we get to the, when we get to the front of the line, they're going to say, you can't get in with that. You can't get in. You're in, you're in the wrong. You don't have the right ticket to get in here. Now, what if I say, well, I'm, I'm going to stay here anyways. I'm going to stay here. I am devoted to this line right here. They, they, the, the event worker is going to be like, that's fine. You could do that. But this line doesn't go where you think it goes. Listen to me, that's the same truth that you have with an allegiance to your own meritorious works. You can choose to stand in that line, but you're going to get to the front of it and the angel at the door is going to say, this doesn't lead where you think it leads. You, You have the wrong allegiance. And so what are we given now in Christ because of what he has done? He's abolished it in his flesh. Remember, the law still stands. He, he, didn't, he didn't abolish the law in the sense that it doesn't exist. It still exists. It just now exists fulfilled in Christ. And so your allegiance isn't to the law. It's to who? It's to the one who fulfilled it. That's what he now offers you and I here. When it comes to what God did, he now gives us a new attitude to each other. Some of you need this. All of us need this. It's because we're still sinners. Now, we don't have the same problem of a Jew-Gentile divide here in Segola, but do you know what you have? Now, you, you have people who don't maybe say the right thing to you. You have your own expectations for you, what you want to see. You've got people who rub you right way and the wrong way. You need, to have, you need to have something new in your attitude. And so it's the Spirit of God that's given to us in what Jesus has done by taking those who were far and those who were near, and bringing them back together. Remember Gentiles who were on the outside, and the Jews who were close on the inside? What has happened? What has transgressed now that Jesus has come? Well, now these two groups are brought together. I found this really great picture on the internet uh, this week. I'm not sure if you've ever seen one of these before. If you can't read it, 
the shirt says, our get-along shirt. So, so what do mom and dad do when the siblings are fighting? <laughs> Stuff them in the same shirt. And look how happy those kids are, right? <laughs> now, why doesn't this work? Because we, we brought them together, didn't we? Of course, yeah, we brought them together. But what don't they have, at least in this picture? Yeah, it's their attitudes. Their attitudes are not right. I, I want you to know, church, the same is going to be true of you. If you have not been transformed with a new attitude to look at others the way Jesus looks at others, you're going to look like these kids. Because God's going to make his church. He's going to put his people together. And you're either going to stand there like this. I just can't. I hate them. I can't believe i got to serve with them. I see them every Sunday. Or you allow the transforming work of vertical reconciliation to give you a new attitude to one another, to get along with one another. And that's exactly what we now have. So what about our rights? Well, we now have a new access to God. Uh, This comes back in verse 19. You're no longer foreigners and aliens. You're now fellow citizens with God. You're not just looking on the outside far away. You're now right in there. I remember in grade school, we would get dismissed by the bell and, and be uh, sent to lunch. But the poor lunch ladies weren't ready for us. Now, I was a middle schooler, so I was hungry, still hungry. I wanted to eat. And so I would get there early and I'd look, I'd look through the door and you could just look and you could see all the food, but you couldn't eat it. You could just look, but you had no access to it until I discovered the lunchroom had two doors. So you could, you could just very nonchalantly make your way down to the front where the workers go in and be like, oh, look at the doors open here and get your tray and go through until they caught on to me and they started locking that door as well. This is what life for you and I is like without Jesus. You're only on the outside looking in. But now because of Jesus, all of the promises of God, all of the covenants that God has made to his people, they're yours. The doors are wide open. Welcome. Come. This is for you as well. You now have access to God, to hope, to the covenants. That's what it means to believe and put your hope in Jesus. And then lastly, and this is where we're going to springboard to our conclusion. We now have a new assembling of the church. A brand new assembling. And you got to really know what Paul means by this and what I mean by this. Assemble is an English word that can mean to gather together, right? That's not what I mean by this. Obviously, look, we're all in the same place on a Sunday morning. We're gathered together. That's not, that's not the main event as to what Jesus has done in, in uh, reconciling us to one another. He's actually assembling the same way that you would assemble uh, like a Lego uh, contraption. What do you call a Lego project. You guys get what I'm talking about, right? You understand Legos, right? So you got Legos in the box. They're all distorted from one another. And then what do you do? You start to click them in to one another. Now this one doesn't touch all the others, but it touches one that touches one that touches one that touches all the others. Listen, that's the assembling that we now have in the church. You are part of a larger conglomeration of God's designing to build a people together in a network. That's the assembling of the church. And this idea is what moves us into our conclusions. Because if you can't tell, we've really skipped over the end of chapter, or the end of verse 20, 21, and 22. And that's going to get us to our conclusions for this morning. So um, if you just look with me back into the text once more, I'm going to read through it. And then we'll wrap it up here. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
I'm sorry, I got to start in 19. It says, members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you, Sagola, you, too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So here's the result. It's that through Christ, it is the church who is now God's people. And this has some important conclusions for us today. The first is this. Jesus is, is the designer. He is the one who puts it all together. And in that sense, I'm calling him a contractor. You guys know what a contractor does? Yeah, you might think, well, he's the his original builder, right? He puts up the structure. There's another reason you'll call a contractor, right? If you're building a, a, a fire pit incinerator that a bunch of Yahoo missionaries put together and it goes wrong, who are you going to call? A contractor. Because the contractor is going to come in not only to build it fresh, but also to repair that which is broken. This is Jesus. I, I want you to see, look with me back into chapter 2 as to the how this whole thing comes together. Uh, in verse 13, it says that we who are far away have been brought near how? Do you see it? Through the blood of Christ. Look in verse 15. He abolished it in his flesh. And again in verse 16, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. I'm not sure you're catching it here, but the theme through all of these is that it was Jesus's work on the cross that has designed now a new people. I want you to know, church, it is Jesus's work on the cross that will help to repair the problems you have right now. Those issues that you have with other people, the the division that's so easy to find, especially in the church, he's the contractor. He can come and bring repair wherever it's needed. Um, I I have a verse here. It's it's a little long one. It, It comes from 1 Peter, just the first half of it. I want you to see how the apostle to the Jews, Peter, says the same thing that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, says. Just at the beginning, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. I had, to, I had those blocks torn down. And what did the contractor tell me they needed to put in? Do you remember? It was stone. Now, he picked big stones and little stones. Didn't matter. He, he picked stones of every, any side because they all together were holy and precious. They all, according to the contractor's design, was brought in. Didn't matter if one looked different than the other. Didn't matter if one had a different um, background or dressed differently. I mean, you can, it's so petty, the things that we cause division in the church. Someone said this to me. Someone didn't say this to me. Like all kinds of little things that will show up. I want you to know that it's by God's design that the church is built together. Number two, he's the definer. He's the definer. Jesus is the Webster's Dictionary of the church. All right, you guys get get that idea? Whatever it is that you're going to think about one another, you don't have the authority to do it. Jesus does. He is the one who determines how we treat one another. And so we find this again in chapter 2, in verse 21. In him the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The end of verse 20, because Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. You guys know what the cornerstone does? I was really thankful for Derek's message today. The cornerstone defines every other stone. 
And so as those contractors came to tear down the crummy incinerator we built, they picked all different kinds of stones, but every stone was aligned according to the designer and the cornerstone. They were defined how they wanted to be. So if there was one stone that was too big, contractor chipped it away, made it line up just right with the way he had it planned. Listen, the same is true for us in the church. The, it, it, church doesn't work this way. You don't get to come into church and say, well, let me, let me tell you how God should do things. Mm-mm, that's not how it works. The cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself, is the definer for how we come into line with him. You guys with me on that one? All right, one last conclusion here. Oh, uh, by the way, here we have this same thing taught by the apostle to the Jews. He says, for in scripture says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who don't believe the stone, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. All right, thirdly, lastly, Uh, Jesus is the dweller because Christ is present in our community. This shows up at the very end of our study for this morning. Verse 22, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Um, You can see here again, 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's possession because Jesus lives here. That ought to humble you this morning, church. That, that, that ought to be for you a wow. Jesus lives here. Some of us are fine with Jesus far away, but if Jesus came to visit, it ought, it ought to help to recalibrate how we treat one another. It ought to re- help us recalibrate those little petty offenses that we love to carry against one another. And so what do we do with this this morning? Number one, I want to ask you this question. Have you allowed Christ to tear down the old and renovate your spirit to make it new? Um, I'm so thankful for Derek's example this morning. Um, Stacking wood. We've all been there, right? We've all been there. It wasn't that long ago I pulled up to a a stack that I made and it was on the ground. Now, why was the stack on the ground? Well, because dummy here had a bad foundation. So you know what I did? I put the wood that fell down right back on top. You know what that wood did? (laughs) You you were there. You, You know, it fell down again. I thought, all right, I'll get it right this last time. Put it back up. You know that moment? Have you ever been there where you're like, oh, shoot, I see it moving. And then you're like, just whatever. And boom, the whole thing falls down. Until, you know what I did? Exactly what you heard Derek say this morning. I tore the whole thing down because the foundation needed to be repaired. I want to give you this quote from Mere Christianity. This is C.S. Lewis. He says, give me all of you. This is what God is saying to the sinner. Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here or a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me. The whole outfit, all your desires, all your wants, your wishes, and your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will give you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. And so I just need to begin there with you this morning. Have you done this? You, You are pretending if you just come to church thinking that I'm 
I'm a better person because I come here. God's not interested in making you better in this little area here, in this little area there. He doesn't want so much of you. He wants all of you. He wants to tear the whole thing down and rebuild it from the bottom up. Secondly, I want to ask you this. As Christians, does Jesus now define your relationships with one another? Every one of those stones that the contractor put into the new incinerator had to be aligned by a cornerstone. And so there's alignment that has to be done. I I wonder if we were to ask the question, who should we let into church? I wrote down the generous people who volunteer and are kind. Yeah, any amens on that? That's good. That's the kind of people I want in church. I don't know about you. What about those generous people are lazy? What if those volunteers are gossips? What if those kind people are immoral? Should we let them in? Here's how it works. Every different size of stone gets to come in, but every stone has to orient itself to the corner. That's what it means to become part of church. And so our relationships are now defined by Jesus. Um, In Luke 7, uh, there was a woman who came and anointed Jesus. Right? She, 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 she wept on, on him. She, she dried her tears with her hair. Remember that story? And the Pharisees are there. Do you remember what the Pharisees are like? They're like, this woman's a sinner. This woman's totally a sinner. They were defining their relationship with her based upon their commitment to the law. Remember? Allegiance to the law. And I won't go through the whole story for you other than to say Jesus helps to humble them and reorient, redefine what relationships look like. Lastly... Thirdly, is there any evidence that God dwells here, that Jesus is alive here in this assembling? To ask somebody to come and dwell means they have now been given the rights to characterize what it looks like. Have you ever been to a bachelor's apartment? What does it look like in most of a bachelor apartment? Does it smell good? Does it look good? Some of you women know exactly where I'm going with this. Right? If, if your life without Jesus is tattered and messy and stinky, to let Jesus come in and dwell here means that he fills it with an aroma that's beautiful, that's ordered, that's found according to his will. And so I want to challenge you this morning, if you have not done these things Make sure that there is evidence in your life that God's spirit dwells here so that the old is torn down and that a new man, a new humanity, a new community is built together. Amen? That's pretty good.